Hello and welcome to part two of my Diagnostics Digest with Dennis Merkel, CEO of Europe and Head of Biopharma Business Development at Predison. Here we discuss barriers within the liquid biopsy market, the global market comparisons and differences across territories. If you are interested in gaining insight into new technologies in the world of liquid biopsy, then be sure to have a listen. Here it is, I hope you enjoy. Naturally, there's going to be barriers in, in place. So what specific barriers do you feel that kind of companies like Predison or, or Merck or kind of Garden Health, what barriers do they need to break through, um, whether that be through market access or kind of other setbacks through FDA? Is there anything specific which might prevent liquid biopsy testing becoming um, kind of a daily theme? So, yeah, a great question again. And want to preface my answer by saying it's improved dramatically in the last 10 years. So I can recall a time, and I hope I don't ruffle any feathers, when we launched the first liquid biopsy RAS mutation test with Merck. At the time in Germany, RAS testing belonged to pathology. And why did it belong to pathology? Because it was done on tumor tissue. And that goes to pathology. Now we were proposing you can do it from blood. But in Germany at that time, blood went to clinical chemistry. And there was very good reimbursement for ass mutation testing. You got a few hundred euro um, to run the test. And I can recall when we launched the test in 2015, the German Pathology Society said, liquid biopsy is not ready for the clinic consensus paper. It was devastating. It was in German. You can find it on the internet. And again, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but I was really taken aback at the pushback from this potential, um, you know, clinical utility based technology, just based on who the stakeholder is and who gets the reimbursement that there was such pushback. Now, To the credit of Germany, this is not uh, meant to be negative. They changed their tune very quickly. And within a few years, that liquid biopsy test was actually reimbursed in Germany and and well adopted. So again, scientific evidence and dialogue always prevails, but it, it just gives you, it gives you a small flavor of, like you said, market access reimbursement, who are your stakeholders? So if we fast forward today to two, like 2022, and again, I take this as a global perspective as you know, a North American who's lived in Europe for almost 20 years, reimbursement for next generation sequencing tests, let alone broader panel tests that are on the order of you know, 100 plus genes is still a challenge. And again, and it's understandable, right? These tests are expensive. They cost a few thousand to run, and especially with liquid biopsy, for for those listeners who are obviously aware of the technicalities of a next-generation sequencing test, you need a depth of sequencing on liquid biopsy to achieve a a defined or desired clinical sensitivity. So to do that depth of sequencing, it costs money. And so these tests cost a few thousand today. Right. And I don't think anyone would push back against that. You know, foundation, garden, most companies are, are asking a few thousand dollars to euros per test. And if all you're getting out of that is a few actionable results, 
why wouldn't those labs just run a few single PCR assays at a few hundred dollars a test? Yeah. So that, that's a major market access program, uh, problem. And again, you can say, if I can do all this testing in parallel and get you the answers you need faster, there is definitely a health economic um, rationale behind that, but it's not fully flushed out. Unfortunately, a large swath of the world doesn't even reimburse molecular diagnostics, right? The drugs are often approved and reimbursed, but the test to prescribe said drug is not, yeah. which may seem completely bananas, but it's unfortunately the world we live in. I'll ask a question on, on that, Dennis, as well. I mean, if you looked at the broad goal of, of NGS, it would be yeah. to maybe kind of reduce the costs. Um, right. Would would liquid biopsy be kind of reliant on the likes of an Illumina sequencer, for example, being able to be as big, well, be big enough, and please correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, um, to kind of be big enough to drive them costs down? Are they reliant on other companies and um, the NGS market as well within that? Oh, Adam, Adam. Man, this is a good question. And I don't know how deep we want to get in here because, again, I don't want to offend anyone. Right. Yeah. So Illumina is clearly the market leader in next generation sequencing. Yeah. Are they the market leader clinically? That could be argued because Thermo's ion torrent is used clinically in a lot of markets like Japan and Europe. And again, due to the fact that they have kitted solutions available and those markets are highly decentralized. A lot. And so I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm a very transparent person. I'm happy to be challenged. I'm happy to come back on here and, and debate if, if I ruffle any feathers, but definitely a large part of next generation sequencing costs are due to sequencing reagents. And that's controlled by the sequencing companies. And you, you guys can all look into the current debates ongoing with the Grail acquisition and concerns about competitive leverage you know, if, if Grail belongs to Illumina, can they, in essence, stifle innovation by other companies? But definitely, I mean, Illumina has great sequencing chemistry. I would say when it comes to sensitivity and specificity, they really are the market leader. And you see that manifested in the fact that most companies that are developing sequencing tests are using Illumina sequencers. So it speaks for itself. They have a very good chemistry and they've got technologies that can do very large panels like NovaSeq to mid-size to large labs like NexSeq and then smaller labs like MySeq. So they definitely have that. It, but when you come back to market access for say a content provider like Predison that's making the actual panel for a specific tumor, then that's not just what needs to be reimbursed, right? The lab running the test has to cover the sequencer, the sequencing reagents, and the panel, and the labor to run the panel. So, you know, Predison's offering is only a piece of those four. And indeed, like this, that's why your question is so great to really make this broadly available to the global market, it takes a lot more than one stakeholder. It, it really kind of goes across borders and it goes across companies and across technologies. Really interesting. I know we were going to kind of touch on the, the global market comparisons. You already mentioned Thermo Fisher um, 
as well, the work they're doing in Japan and Europe and how that maybe compares to the US. And what would you maybe class as the, the key differences to maybe a company getting kind of approval through Europe or APAC to, to maybe comparing that to the US with the FDA? A great question. I would flip it and say the problem isn't approval. The problem is market adoption. Um, okay. We're not the, it's not a problem. It's the challenge, right? And again, I'm happy to be challenged. I'm a very opinionated individual, but let's kind of look back at really successful American companies and how well did they do in Europe? <laughs> so how did, how did Myriad do in Europe? I, I, I don't even see them over here. How did genomic health do now exact sciences? How did they do in Europe? How did foundation medicine do in Europe? The biggest difference is, do you have a healthcare system that is willing to send samples out of house? And, you know, here in Europe and a lot of APAC, they won't even send it across the street because why should I send it to my friend across the street? I'm the expert. I know better. Or I have the capabilities and there's reimbursement. Why should I let him or her get that reimbursement when I could keep that in my center, right? So that's why you, you see such a difference in, and, and again, I'm not going to name names. Um, I'll try to keep it high level, but you see it also <laughs> in drug approval. So there's a very recent example. I'll, I'll name the indication, but that's all I'll name non-small cell lung cancer. Two companies, both out of Europe, actually, you know, one of them market leader in the US and the other market leader in Japan. And one of them chose a very centralized solution uh, and a very well-known company out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the other went with a kitted solution. And the kitted solution won Japan because you could install that test locally and Japanese doctors didn't have to send their samples across the ocean to the US for testing. And also they could run the kit for a few hundred dollars versus a few thousand dollars. So both companies had a good, a decent strategy and each of them own huge markets. Obviously US is the biggest market, but Japan is a very significant market, but it just kind of highlights that different solution, probably what they both should have done is done or performed a similar approach. Like, okay, for the US, let's go with that central lab model. And for X US, let's do a kitted solution, right? And then depending on who is approved first or who has superior clinical efficacy, you could have owned the global market, right? But often, Pharma will kind of pick one horse. We need a CDX. We've got a CDX. And then it's only once they're on market that they kind of realize we might need a different solution for different geographies. And this is very well reflected. I mean, you see big pharma companies launching multiple companion diagnostics with multiple companies. Again, there's a difference between your pivotal trial and getting the drug to market. And then that life cycle management and ensuring proper penetration and adoption. So this isn't meant at all as a knock on pharma. I mean, this is just a very logical evolution. You don't want to use a number of tests in a clinical study. You often want to lock that down, identify the patient population, ensure drug approval. But then as a next step, once you're on the market, well, what can I do to gain market access to the testing? 
because that's often the gate. If you cannot diagnose patients with a certain molecular alteration, they're never going to get the drug. So that's a hugely evolving and very interesting space to keep an eye on. Fascinating when you kind of break it down like you have. I'm no expert in, in this, but I think ultimately, like you mentioned, it, it does come down to driving down them costs as much as possible yeah. and making it more accessible for, for patients to kind of go through this process. Because um, the starting point of this is it's a deadly disease, but also what is next? Can we kind of get there quicker? Um, is there any, or has there been in the last, I don't want to bring up COVID too much, but the certain setbacks are natural, um, especially I know there's been, I've done a lot of work in the US and it seems to be the FDA was being quite far behind. Is that the same in Europe and, and APAC as well? Are they everyone just catching up now? Yeah, I mean, setbacks, like, you know, again, if I could go back to this RAS liquid biopsy example, circa 2015, and, and I spoke with some people at conferences from the FDA, and back then it was like, you know, and luckily the company I was working for at the time did not market the anti-EGFR therapy in the U.S., so we didn't need FDA approval. That was a, a luxury, I guess. But just for interest's sake, I'd kind of ask them, what would we need to do to get this kind of test approved by the FDA? And back then it was very clear, you need a phase three clinical study and demonstrate that your test uh, identifies responders to the drug. And again, for a drug that's already been on market for 10 years, no one's gonna do that. And that's where, like I would say, good credit to FDA and PMDA in Japan and the EMA and the European authorities they become a lot more flexible in showing high concordance and uh, interchangeability between already approved tests or gold standard tests and novel technologies. So that's already really eased the, uh, the, the path to adoption. You know, and again, I don't really think it's regulatory approval that is the setback. It's really often like who ends up paying for the test and is it reimbursable? So, you know, no one will doubt that a Medexon 14 mutation identifies patients in non-small cell lung cancer who can benefit from a number of therapies. But depending on the test in the region, you might get say 450 US dollars versus $3,000. But what if I told you the $3,000 is only available if you're a late line patient and you've already gone through other standards of care and you have no other options, right? That's a, a really different ball game than if you're a first line patient who is treatment naive and has that molecular alteration. So it, it's yeah. not always so simple to just say like, it's a regulatory problem. It's often a payer problem and an access problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why kind of why we're all in this together. And I think, you know, all these agencies are doing a great job trying to standardize. I mean, we have this new IVDR directive in Europe, which it's challenging. Let's, let's not pretend. I mean, you saw recently they've given a two to three year grace period on the regulation because they're just so far behind from implementing it. And if one was more cynical, one could say like, ha ha, see, they weren't ready to implement this. But at the end of the day, if you compare it to the previous regulation where you could just self-declare. So I've seen companies do, you know, test validations on cell lines from, you know, let's say breast cancer cells. 
and then make clinical claims for patients in non-small cell lung cancer. You know, maybe the test is fine, but there's absolutely no clinical evidence. There's no actual evidence from that patient population. So is that really the right path forward? Whereas under the new IVDR, at least it moves more towards providing proper clinical evidence. And again, whereas previously every single companion diagnostic needed a new phase three study to show the benefit of the drug, most of these regulatory agencies are now very amenable to showing concordance or non-inferiority to already approved devices. So I think we're moving in the same direction, but we still kind of have that elephant in the room is how do we get to these larger DNA panels or, or NGS panels, I should say, and, and really enable broader and multiple time point testing. And again, I would just add, <clears throat> you often hear the cynics say like, oh my God, I, I, these drugs cost 20, 30,000 per month. And you guys are complaining about a one-time $3,000 test fee. And there's some validity to that. I, I get that. Absolutely. Like if I'm on this therapy for a year and I'm paying 30,000 a month and healthcare has no problem reimbursing that versus a one-time 3,000, it, it looks like a disparity. But if you look at it from the entire healthcare system perspective, what if only 2% of cancer patients have that molecular alteration? So you have to run that $3,000 test thousands of times per year in each country to identify 10, 20 patients who can benefit from the therapy. So that's also a massive drain on the healthcare budget. So I guess I just wanted to add that caveat that it's, it's not so simple. And obviously, you know, NHS, NICE, um, NCI, they're, they're trying to balance, you know, diagnostics and patient benefit across tests far beyond oncology, right? And just make sure that patients have the best access and reimbursement to all kinds of different medical technologies, whether it's imaging-based or cardiology markers, protein-based testing, <laughs> Um, it's, yeah, it, it, it gets overwhelming very quickly. So, you know, just wanted to add that caveat. I, I don't want to be too cynical or too negative. It's, it's just, obviously, I, I do think everyone is really working with the best intentions to move the best standard of care forward. I agree. And there's always a, a broader scope, isn't there? Than just liquid biopsy. It's very easy just to get focused in on that. Yeah. Um, So that was part two of my Diagnostics Digest with Dennis Merkler, the CEO of Europe and head of Biopharma Business Development at Predison. I hope anybody who is interested in any of the topics we discussed during the podcast could gain some valuable perspectives from our discussion. In part three, we discussed key liquid biopsy technologies and exciting insight from Dennis's role at Predison. Thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Adam Hargreaves. Bye for now.